Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrasli. When India established its democracy in 1950, the odds were stacked against it. The country had achieved independence just three years earlier, after over a century under British colonial rule. On August 15, 1947, the great symbol of the British Empire came down for the last time to be replaced by the banner of the new Indian government. Tumultuous crowds filled the streets, celebrating, singing and laughing. Police were called out many times to restore order, where everyone ran wild with joy. India had a massive and diverse population. Poverty was widespread. Many adults were illiterate. Yet over the last 71 years, the world's largest democracy has thrived. It has held free election after free election. It's the world's biggest exercise in democracy. The numbers are huge, the challenges considerable, and the issues at stake immense. Some 815 million Indians are eligible to vote at almost a million polling stations scattered across the country. More than 11 million election officials and security forces, they're being mobilized around the country by boats, rail, roads, and even elephants. Per capita income has risen steadily. The literacy rate has quadrupled, and a strong middle class has emerged. Now, India is on course to overtake China as the fastest growing economy in the world. The rapid economic growth has investors taking note, of course, and with a large population of young people ready to work, the future seems extremely bright for the world's second most populous nation. But cracks in India's democratic foundations have recently started to show. That's thanks in large part to Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Bharatiya Janata Party. Is India's multicultural democracy at risk of crumbling? Hi, Milan. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Here to help us answer this question is Milan Vaishnav. I'm well, thank you. <clears throat> I'm Milnira. Milan is the director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of When Crime Pays, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Milan, I want to start by looking at India's transition to democracy after independence. At the time, many were skeptical that it was even possible. What conditions made it unlikely and even unprecedented? I think that's exactly right. And I would just say that the skepticism was shared by Indians themselves. It wasn't just uh, British uh, colonizers who who thought that a democratic India would be problematic. You know, India was really on paper quite um, inhospitable to democracy, right? Number one, you have a rigid caste system that ingrains inequalities into every aspect of social life. Uh, India at the time and still today is a is a very poor country. And one thing we know about democracy around the world is that it's very hard to instill in poor countries and, and even harder to keep when you don't have rapid economic growth. Uh, you have a sprawling geography, right? If you think about uh, just the Indian subcontinent. And then you have really unprecedented diversity, diversity in terms of religion, in terms of language, in terms of ethnicity and identification. And so you sort of add up all of these factors, one on top of the other, and you say, you know, how does one construct a lasting democracy against these, you know, pretty uh, significant odds? It certainly wouldn't be an easy task. 
At the dawn of Indian independence, there were two competing visions for the new state. Hindu nationalists held that Indian identity was embodied by the religion of the majority. Others, including independence leaders Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, advocated for a national identity based on diversity, tolerance, and secularism. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new, when an age ends, and when the soul of a nation, long suppressed, finds utterance. The secular vision captured more hearts. Nehru became India's first prime minister, and his party, the Indian National Congress, swept to power in the national parliament and most state legislatures. Prime Minister Nehru called upon leaders representing many shades of political thought and various religious groups to help build a modern democratic state out of age-old India. Secularism and individual rights were enshrined in the Constitution. Millen says that this was essential to Indian democracy's success. So on the one hand, you had a vision of India as a kind of syncretic, multicultural, multi-ethnic, democratic polity. This was the kind of Gandhian vision, right? So that India was not a monolith, it was a mosaic. And the only way that India could survive, at least on democratic terms, was to really lean into this diversity and find unity out of this unprecedented diversity such that you know, there was no one definition of what was Indian, right? You could have multiple complementary but overlapping identities. But there was a very different vision, which wanted to find alignment between the Hindu religion uh, and the Indian homeland, right? And under this vision, uh, Hindu culture and Indian culture are basically coterminous, right? And, and, and we should remind your listeners that, you know, 80% of India's population is Hindu. So it is a dominant majority group. There was a debate. There was a reckoning. And the Gandhian or Nehruvian vision of, of secularism won out. But, you know, just as a caveat, the Indian model of secularism is very different from the secular model that uh, we have come to know and love in the West, where we have, in many countries like the United States, a clear separation between church and state, right? There's a kind of firewall where where the state doesn't get involved in, in religious matters. The Indian model is very different, where the state actually under the constitution, can intervene in religious affairs. It can sponsor religious pilgrimages. It can provide funds to schools that impart religious education, right? However, it has to do so on an even-handed basis, right? So it's a kind of equal embrace and equal distance from all religious faith. So that's a very, very different model. Um, and it's it's the the lack of adherence, ultimately, to that model that paves the way for the resurgence of Hindu nationalism decades later. Okay, and picking up on that, I mean, clearly, we see that politics didn't always reflect the secularist tradition that India was founded upon. And we start seeing in the 1980s the Congress Party pandering to different religions to advance its political agenda. How did this affect India's secular identity? Right. So the Congress Party was the dominant uh, party post-independence. It really had an enormous reservoir of goodwill uh, amongst the Indian people. It was home to the tallest leaders. You know, you step back and you say the Congress Party may be the most successful post-colonial political party anywhere in the world, right? So it really was a, a singular force. 
But because there was this blurry line of secularism uh, of, you know, how do you define what equal distance from a religion and equal embraces, there were a lot of incentives for politicians when it was politically expedient to cater to quote unquote religious vote banks, right? So to pander with um, to to Islamic constituencies, to pander to Hindu constituencies, to pander to Sikh constituencies, and so on and so forth. Over time, uh, opponents of the Congress started to say, "Look, this isn't secularism. This is pseudo secularism. You act as if you're holier than thou above all religion, but in fact, uh, when it suits you." You, you intervene willy-nilly, right? And so that started to hollow out this idea of secularism and, and, and the idea that, you know what, um, uh, Hindus are often treated like a minority in their own country, but they're 80% of the population. But the Congress is busy playing vote bank politics to try to get minorities onto its side. Um, there, sh- there should be a different vision coming to the fore. And that's really what is animating uh, a-, a lot of politics today is you, you, you have a hollowing out of the secular vision. You don't have a 21st century replacement. And what's filled the vacuum is Hindu nationalism. By the 1990s, many Hindu nationalists had coalesced under the Bharatiya Janata Party. At the time, Indians were increasingly fed up with politics as usual. We had sought from the people of India a clear and decisive mandate to form a stable government. This helped fuel support for BJP candidates, including Uttal Bihari Vajpayee, who became the party's first prime minister. The emergence of NDA as the ruling coalition is one of the most important political developments in the history of independent India. But in 2002, religious riots shook the state of Gujarat. Hindu mobs raged through the state, burning their neighbors alive and raping women, whilst the police and authorities were accused of standing back and at times encouraging it. The violence began when a train full of Hindu pilgrims was set alight. Gujarat's minority Muslim population suffered the biggest loss of property in life, and many blamed the BJP for instigating the violence. The party lost the next election, and a far more secular Congress-led coalition took its place. Eventually, the people of India know what is good for them, and they always make the right choice. Congress-led coalitions ruled until 2014, when the BJP pulled off a surprise win in national elections. Ballots counted after six weeks of voting in India, and we're talking landslide. The BJP captured the first single-party parliamentary majority in three decades. Leading the victorious BJP was a charismatic politician with a compelling story, Narendra Modi. So Modi had been the chief minister of the state of Gujarat, which is a kind of, you know, state of 60 to 70 million people, prosperous state in northwestern India. He had been the chief minister or chief executive of that state for over a dozen years. And during his tenure, became known for two things. One, uh, being known as a kind of Hindu hardliner, someone who was unafraid to advocate for Hindu nationalism. Number two, that Gujarat experienced the highest GDP growth rates of any Indian state during that period became known for uh, creating a hospital environment for foreign investment, for creating jobs, industry, so on and so forth. 
This was set against the backdrop of uh, of an Indian economy that was in free fall, where GDP growth had been cut in half, inflation was running amok, the ruling Congress party was bogged down by just really mind-boggling uh, corruption scandals, one after the other. Um, and there was a sense of kind of policy paralysis and a kind of rudderless leadership, right? And so in walks Modi saying, look, what I've done in my own state for 12 or 13 years if you elect me, I'll just scale up this model nationwide. I'll do what I did for Gujarat for 1.3 billion Indians, right? And at the time when you were staring at an opposition or an incumbent that was soon to be the opposition, which which had no platform, no leadership, no sense of direction, uh, you know, many Indians said, you know, why not? Uh, this seems like a pretty good swap. As Millen notes, part of Modi's appeal lies in his promise to bring back the good times. But his actions often defy India's founding ideals. In fact, since winning re-election in another landslide in 2019, Modi and the BJP have pursued an overtly Hindu nationalist agenda. This includes systematically stripping the rights of the country's Muslims. Citizenship law in India has brought protests onto the streets and violent scene. It expedites a path to citizenship for religious minorities living in India, but excludes Muslims. Importantly, this comes as India is undergoing a national registration, asking every person to prove citizenship. Modi's critics accuse him of taking a set of anti-Muslim measures and of steering the country towards becoming a nationalist Hindu state. Milan Modi has a long history of appealing to India's Hindu population, and he's faced quite a bit of controversy and scrutiny over the 2002 riots in Gujarat. How has Modi's Hindu nationalist agenda broken India's founding social contract? You know, he's a true believer. I mean, he is somebody who who cut his teeth um, in the RSS and what's known as the Sangh Parivar or this this family of Hindu nationalist organizations. And so I think looked at the framework of Indian politics and said, you know, this is not really what India represents. And so has worked in different ways, particularly in the last couple of years, to try to push some major Hindu nationalist goals. So what are some of those goals? So, for instance, in 2019, the government uh, directed by Modi decided to nullify a constitutional provision that for decades had granted the state of Jammu and Kashmir a semblance of constitutional semi-autonomy. Uh, it's worth pointing out Jammu and Kashmir was the only uh, Muslim-majority state in India, uh, and it had a separate constitution. Uh, laws passed by parliament didn't automatically apply to Kashmir unless they were ratified by the state. And so a lot of Hindus said, wait a second, why is this state getting all these special privileges when the rest of us are bound by what parliament does? Then again, in 2019, uh, the government passed something called the Citizenship Amendment Act, or the CAA. And what that says is that if you are uh, an illegal or undocumented migrant who comes from one of India's neighbors and you've landed up in India, uh, we will give you an expedited pathway to citizenship provided you, you are not a Muslim. So you could be Hindu, Jain, Sikh, Parsi, Christian, uh, basically anything but Muslim, and you will be put on a fast track to citizenship. Now, the government's defense was, well, 
if Muslims are being persecuted, there are any number of our neighbors they can go to. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you know, they don't need to come to India. India is a homeland for others, Hindus and others who are persecuted. But of course, many people who believe in secularism, many Muslims, many minorities saw this as a complete affront, right? You're basically codifying some kind of second-class citizenship. Um, so these are some of the steps that Modi has tried to um, implement, which are, I think, in alignment with what the BJP and Hindu nationalism has long, um, you know, advocated for. We'll be right back. We know you've been alarmed and exhausted by the turmoil of the past year in the United States and all over the world. We saw outright lies fuel doubt in our elections and spark an insurrection. We saw international leaders like the US and the UK screw up their response to the global pandemic. And we're seeing strongman tactics threaten democratic institutions in countries like Brazil, India, and Hungary. At the same time, people have mobilized like never before to defend democracy, promote civil rights, and address the climate crisis. Does this fill you with a mix of anxiety and hope? There's a new podcast from the University of Virginia that's helping listeners to make sense of it all. It's called Democracy in Danger. Each week, hosts Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan unpack the threats facing democracy and ask what we can do about it. They cover topics like successful protest movement with legendary activist Sergei Popovich, the radical idea of degrowing the economy with anthropologist Jason Hickel, and the terror of cyberstalking with MacArthur Fellow Danielle Citron. Visit dendanger.org for more and subscribe to Democracy in Danger on any podcast app. So beyond pursuing a Hindu nationalist agenda, Modi has been working to consolidate power in the hands of the executive, including by eroding judicial independence and the autonomy of India's 29 states. What institutional weaknesses did Modi exploit to be able to achieve this? You know, this is a really important question. I think the way that you framed it is exactly right, which is these were pre-existing conditions that a new leader could exploit. These were not new weaknesses that Modi kind of created, right? You know, the, the way that we've thought about it uh, in, in some recent work I've done with, with a colleague, Madhav Kosla, is that, you know, a leader with a very clear vision could change so much by changing so little. So, for instance, there is a colonial era law on sedition on the books. Um, many governments have used it before. Modi has doubled down on it. Defamation in India, unlike virtually any other country in the world, invites not only civil penalties, but criminal ones as well. Um, that's something this government has used to quelch dissent. There have always been weaknesses in check and balance institutions, whether it's parliament, whether it's the courts, whether it's the auditor general or the investigative authorities. Modi has just allowed those weaknesses to to gather strength, right? So when he ran Gujarat, he was known as a centralizer. He was known as a kind of CEO, chief minister to take the bull by the horns, govern with a small group of trusted advisors. And many people would say on the economy, it paid dividends for him, right? But doing that at a national level for India at large is a much, much different enterprise. But he has sought not just to consolidate power, 
and to implement a more majoritarian vision, but also to quelch dissent, right? So even today, uh, in the era of the coronavirus pandemic, police are taking down posters that are questioning Modi about why he sent Indian-made vaccines abroad when so many Indians don't have vaccines. You would think that's a fundamental right of freedom of speech, right? I mean, to question your leader. In seven years of being prime minister, he has not given a single press conference where he has taken questions from the press, right? I mean, so so there are many characteristics of what we would call, you know, strong man or strong woman politics. Modi isn't the first Indian prime minister to test the country's democracy. In 1975, Indira Gandhi suspended the constitution during a period known as the emergency. A few people had created a situation of um, indiscipline, which was leading towards grave problems of law and order. And uh, had they continued, I think we would have had anarchy in this country. Today, Modi is using many of the same tactics. Millen says that this poses a serious threat to Indian democratic tradition. One of the really impressive things actually about the BJP up until the time Modi came to power in 2014 is that it was really a decentralized party. It was less a national party than a collection of quite autonomous state units, which of course had a common allegiance to the kind of Hindu nationalist uh, idea, but but functioned uh, by empowering state leaders who were very close to their populations and had some kind of connection. Modi has really remade the party in his image. It's now Modi's party. And all of the BJP state leaders in power, no exceptions, have been handpicked by Modi. Um, And so that has hollowed out the internal party democracy within the BJP, which used to be a distinction between the BJP and the Congress, and it's very much how Indira Gandhi used to rule. You know, secondly, is that if you want to achieve an inclusive, prosperous India of the future, um, it's very hard to do so if you leave 15 to 20% of your population behind, right? India's minorities. That if you um, uh, essentially codify them as second-class citizens, what does that do? Not just to inequality, but in terms of social unrest, in terms of social division, um, is is a, is another real kind of you know pressing threat. Um, and you know the final thing is that in a democracy as diverse as India. Um, you have needed to have safety valves for people to be able to express their views, either in dissent or sometimes in terms of regional nationalism, right? In terms of linguistic nationalism. I mean, and that was the brilliance of the Constitution, which was to try not to impose a one-size-fits-all uh, formula on India, which, you know, I should mention not just Pakistan tried to do, but Sri Lanka tried to do, another one of India's neighbors. Um, and we saw what the effects were there, right, at <laughs> the decades-long civil war. Um, so I think the risks, not just in terms of democracy, but also in terms of growth and in terms of, you know, the social fabric of the country. Melon, I want to turn now to the challenges Modi faces. He has certainly gotten a lot of criticism for his response to the devastating second wave of coronavirus in India, where we've seen a tremendous number of deaths. 
is the public right to blame the crisis on the government? Look, last year, India faced the first wave of the coronavirus, as did every other country in the world, and it, it did exact a toll, although India emerged relatively unscathed, at least in per capita terms, in terms of cases and fatalities. And, you know, at the start of this year, things looked like they had kind of gone back to normal, right? The economy was revving up again. People were going back. Social mobility was in- increasing. Physical mobility was increasing. And the government decided that they were going to plant the flag of victory, right? They sounded a very triumphalist note that we vanquished this thing. Meanwhile, scientists, epidemiologists around the world were saying, wait a second, um, we don't know about this virus, right? The second wave is really likely, a third wave is even likely, and we have to be very cautious, right? In terms of social distancing, masking, right? All of the things that we've now become accustomed to. And the government sort of wasn't having it. And so when things were working well, there was a centralization of credit. We did this. The Modi government protected you. Now things have gone off the rails. And what do you hear now? You hear that, well, under the Constitution, health is a state subject, not a central subject. Where is Modi? Nowhere to really be found, right, in the public eye. So you centralize the credit when things have gone well. You decentralize the blame when things have gone badly. And so I do think we have enough evidence now to suggest that the central government was caught off the back foot and didn't... Uh, invest in the kind of preparation, yes, any government under the situation would have had a hard time. I mean, you know, those of us sitting in the West in the United States have firsthand experience of how we bumbled through this entire pandemic, right, until fairly recently. So one has to approach this with with some amount of, of, of self-awareness and humility. But at the same time, it's very clear that um, whether it's about um, investing in, in hospital beds, in oxygen, in vaccines, right? I mean, India is the vaccine producer for the world. It has a massive vaccine shortfall at home that the government does demand some responsibility and, and accountability. Modi has also faced criticism for his economic management. He rose to power in 2014 on the promise of growth-enhancing pro-business reform. But as prime minister, he oversaw a disastrous demonetization. India is in the middle of a grand economic experiment. The government has banned 501,000 rupee notes. That's the equivalent of $7 and $15 respectively, which accounts for most of the cash that's in circulation. Modi said he ordered the withdrawal to tackle corruption and flush out money hidden from tax officials. But millions of Indians are now scrambling to exchange their old money for newly printed denominations. The success of the currency withdrawal has been called into question, as illicit money from bribes and undocumented sources have been turning up during and even just after the withdrawal. Modi has also overseen India's worst economic slowdown in decades. And yet, he hasn't really been punished at the ballot box. Milan thinks this is unlikely to change. I mean, I can say with certainty that the degree of anger directed towards Modi and his government amongst urban residents and the middle classes is the highest it's been since he's come to power seven years ago, uh, without any doubt. Doesn't compare to demonetization, doesn't compare to the internal migrant crisis that we saw last year during the first wave of of, of COVID. Um, However, and there's a big however, there are many structural factors uh, that would make it unwise to bet against Modi. Number one is that if voters really want to punish Modi, they can't do so until 2024, which is when Indians will go to the polls next to select the next parliament, right? So that's still three years away. 
And we don't even know what next month is going to look like, much less, you know, next year. The second, as I alluded to before, Narendra Modi is head and shoulders more popular than any other politician in India. He's he's more popular than his own party. So I do think there's uh, a certain amount of popular legitimacy. However, the BJP and Modi's control of the information order the ability to censor media or to induce self-censorship, which in fact is more pernicious and I think more pervasive, to use social media as so many populist leaders do to control the narrative, right? To use security forces and the coercive apparatus to try to clamp down on dissent. This helps in shaping the narrative. And so many people, in my view, are prematurely sounding the death knell for Modi saying, oh my gosh, when he's up for re-election in 2024, he's finished. Um, I beg to differ. Uh, I think that he has managed to reinvent himself multiple times before in 2014 and in 2019, and he's going to do so again in 2024. And a lot hinges on whether the opposition is going to learn anything from the last seven years and figure out how to coalesce around a common message, a common leader, and a common ideology. Millen, I want to end with a closer look at the opposition. The Congress Party has essentially been on life support since 2014. Can it pose a real challenge to Modi and the BJP? Not in its current form, um, I don't believe. If you rewind the clock to 2014 and tried to do a uh, diagnosis of what ailed the Congress, you would come up with three shortcomings. You don't have an effective leader. So Rahul Gandhi, who is the kind of heir to the Nehru Gandhi dynasty, um, you know, the, the Congress party is a dynastic party. It's almost always been led by a member of this family, is not seen as a, an effective politician, I think, in the popular imagination. Um, but when you have a dynastic party and he's the dynast who holds the reins, you know, what do you do? The second is that over time, the grassroots organization of the party has really atrophied. People have defected to other parties. Um, Local level representatives have been unpopular. Funding has been an issue, right? And that creates a kind of vicious cycle. And then third, you know, coming back to where we started this conversation, secularism was the uh, modus operandi of the Congress party. But it's clearly been discredited. It's not uh, forever, but in the way it has been practiced up until now, right? So it's still there for the taking, I believe, if one could construct a new kind of reinterpretation, but that hasn't happened. So that was in 2014. We knew all of these three things. Fast forward to today, each one of those I would submit is either unchanged or has gotten worse, right? And so it is the only pan-Indian party capable of taking on Modi. Uh, if it can't if it's unable or unwilling to perform that role, then it has to play a role in cobbling together some kind of opposition uh, coalition. But uh, even there, a lot of opposition parties view it as a liability, saying, wait a second, maybe we're better going off on our own and just like leaving the Congress to atrophy and eventually disappear. So that's the kind of stage where we are at in Indian politics, where you kind of have you know, uh, two and a half camps. You have the BJP camp, you have the kind of regional opposition camp, and then you have the the battered and bloodied Congress, which is hanging on. And it's sort of not clear, you know, how they're going to to, to manufacture a, a kind of rehabilitation. Millen, thank you so much. 
It's been great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Milan Vaishnav, the director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. <laughs>